welcome to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline. I am your host, Monica Hadley. Caroline won't be with us today. Our guest today is J.L., and she is the New York Times indie best-selling and award-winning author of multiple books, including Against the Tide, an original prequel novel tie-in to the Little Mermaid live-action film. Her debut duology, Wings of Ebony, dubbed an incredible debut by NPR and best fantasy book by Pop Sugar, was a 2022 NAACP Image Award nominee for Outstanding Literary Work for Youth and Teens and won many other awards. And her forthcoming blockbuster fantasy romance trilogy, House of Marion, is being translated into 10 languages across five continents. And that is the book that we're going to be talking about today. Jay is a former educator and credits her nomadic lifestyle and humble inner city beginnings as inspiration for her novels. When she's not writing, she can be found on the hunt for desserts without chocolate, drowning herself in Regency reads and shows, and looking for any excuse to wear a tiara. Welcome to Writer's Voices, Jay. Thank you. So did I pronounce everything correctly? You absolutely did. <laughs> okay, great. So, um, how did you become a published author? What was your What was the first book you wrote, and how did you get started? Sure. So, I think I had. Well, I know I had a, a strangely different journey. And one of the things I like to tell writers is that everyone's journey looks different. When I imagined myself as a writer. As much as I love stories and books that just never crossed my mind, I didn't realize it was a job. <laughs> but once I finally like thought of myself as a writer, I sort of had a picture in my head of how it was supposed to go. And my journey did not follow much of that expectation, um, which I think is just hopefully encouraging to aspiring authors. But my publishing career began with a tweet on Twitter. And I had recently had an image pop in my head about a story that I was that that I didn't know anything about other than what I could see in the image. There was a girl standing over a bleeding body. She was very sad and she felt very powerless to stop whatever violence had transpired. I didn't know who the person was. I didn't know their relationship to her. I just knew she was very very grieved and very sad and very heavy. And so I wanted to write a story, a magical story to put power in that girl's hands. The thing that I was so interested about in that story is that she didn't look like any of the sort of super superheroes or fantasy heroines that I'd grown up reading. She was totally different because she was just an everyday kid in an inner city community. She just had on like a t-shirt and jeans. There, there was nothing, there was no armor or any sort of, you know, anything obviously magical about her. And the area that she was standing in reminded me of my childhood where I grew up, like the, the neighborhood. I mean, and so I just thought, how cool would it be to pin a story where this everyday girl um, comes into her ancestors' magic and protects her home community? And so I decided to write that book. I had no idea what I was doing. Literally did not know how to make a chapter. Like, I just, it was, all <laughs> it was a hot mess. 
But um, I was determined to try to tell the story because I was just so excited to like share that image in my head with people. I wanted my friends to understand just how visceral it was and the way to do that, the medium to do that for me was words. So I wrote furiously for about 35 days until I had a finished draft of Wings of Ebony, which became my debut novel. Um, And for the writers out there, I will tell you that the published draft is draft 19. (laughs) So that first first draft sounds quick, but before you be too impressed, (laughs) know that that I cut my teeth on that book in many ways, and it took much, much revising to get it to a publishable version. And so when I finished that book, I entered a Twitter pitch contest um, called DivPit, which may or may not still be around. And I essentially shared a sentence summary, like a hook or a pitch of what Wings of Ebony was about. And you do this on a particular day during a particular set of hours where publishing professionals are actually scrolling through Twitter looking for book pitches. And so I did that. There were about 30,000 tweets trending at the time, and mine went viral. And publishing literary agents and editors were commenting and retweeting and saying, I want to read this. I want to read this. So from there, I queried And because of that, I got a a leg up in the query trenches because I was able to make the subject line of my query something along the lines of pitch contest or something like that. And so it jumped ahead of um, some of the other authors. So like I said, it was very strange. I was very fortunate and just so grateful. I ended up with a few offers of representation from that querying. um, And let's see, I signed with an agent in September of 2018, and then I sold Wings of Ebony in June of 2019. So even, even with all of that sort of wind in your sails, it wasn't overnight. It, it did take oh, some goodness, time. Oh, goodness, no. <laughs> and I will also say, I will also say, because oftentimes we just mention that, oh, I ended up with multiple offers of representation. Let me be clear. I got 60 plus rejections from agents, despite all of the excitement and all the momentum, one agent flat out told me, you're just not, you're just not there yet. And, you know, in hindsight, I can see how my writing has grown from book to book as writing does tend to do. But um, I think she underestimated my persistence in tenacity. <laughs> <laughs> and she's um, probably kicking herself now. <laughs> <laughs> It was, uh, but no, there was tons of rejection along the way. And even when the book sold to publishers, let's see, we were on sub for three months and then HarperCollins came back with an R&R request. And essentially um, they were saying, I love your voice. I love, like, you obviously know how to puppet master attention and invest readers. Like, you know how to write. Um, But the magic system is very rooted in, and it feels kind of angel and demony, and which is funny because I hadn't even thought of that, nor was that my intention. <laughs> but like, That's how it's going to read to our acquisitions team, and we aren't really acquiring that sort of stuff right now because it's it's a bit market saturated. And she said, "That's just my opinion. That's what I expect would happen if I took it to an acquisitions meeting. So I can't offer." on this, but if you have any desire to revise or rework it, I love what you have here, the bones of it. And so I said, I rolled up my sleeves and I said, okay. And I, I stripped my entire book of its magic system, which meant I had to start all over again. Oh my gosh. And I wrote in about four weeks, I wrote a 50 page sample and then a summary of what the new book would be. Same character, same image in my head, the heart of the story did not change, but the execution of it changed 
completely. And we submitted that and within weeks we had multiple, we were headed to auction actually with five different publishers interested and then one decided to preempt. Wow. So that editor really did you a favor by turning you down in a way. Exactly. <laughs> she really did. You know, the, the, the great thing in that was when she sent the R&R, and I try to tell writers this all the time, when she sent the R&R, it, it wasn't like, let's talk about a plan to move forward. That was sort of my response. And so what I would encourage writers to do is like when you get rejection, if there is an opening to talk about it or get more feedback or hop on a call, which is what I asked for. And to my delight and surprise, this editor was like, sure, we can do a quick call. And I mean, she's very busy. She was the editorial director of a particular department, just a very busy person. And so she's like, I would, sure, let's hop on a quick call. And I, I kid you not, in that 20 minutes, I soaked up so much feedback. And I could tell that as she was giving me feedback, she was hesitant to like, you know, overwhelm me. And so the more I was able to advocate for myself and say, lay it on me, like, tell me everything. You're not going to hurt my feelings. Just like, let me pick your brain. Tell me everything you're thinking. And she just unloaded. And I kid you not, it was, it revolutionized my writing. Now, what does R&R stand for? It stands for revise and resubmit. So it means that you can revise and the editor is saying, this is not a no. It's a, if you change it up significantly, I would love to look at it again. So that can, yeah, that can be encouraging for a new author. Absolutely. If, yeah. If you, but it could also be discouraging depending on how you take it. So it, it's really it, in it, your it. hands then. So. I'm curious. So in 35 days, you wrote the first draft and you said it was about four weeks to do 50 pages of this rewrite. Was this like all you were doing? <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, at the time, yes. I was, well, no. Okay, <laughs> I did not have a full time job in, in the sense that I had a nine to five where I had an office that I had to report to. I was very fortunate. My husband worked full-time. Now he was a full-time military officer, so he was not home often. So when I say I didn't have a nine-to-five job, I still was like running a single parent home. <laughs> I had three very small children. Oh, one, was still in, one was still in um, pull-ups. And so I was managing and juggling a bunch. And to be honest, in that four-week period, three weeks of those, that was like banging my head against the wall trying to figure out what to do. Once I actually had a plan <laughs> the writing came through quick, I just did not know what to do because I was like, well, if I just take out the wings, that's how they transport. And then that's tied to, the, it was all of these things. And I was like, I guess I have to like fully start over. <laughs> and it was so daunting. But um, my agent and I at the time would just get on the phone and we would toss around ideas and I didn't like half of them. And I was like, no, no, no. And I'd get off the phone frustrated. And then we'd get on the call again. And I'd have another idea and it wasn't quite it. But yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a labor of love <laughs> and it was in between diapers and I have pets and, you know, it was just, it was not easy, but I was fortunate because my husband, uh, my husband worked. And so that was, you know, I didn't have to worry about, uh, you know, to making sure that to keep a roof over the heads or thing, thing like that. I, I had a yeah, small, family. but still three kids. It's not, <laughs> it's not nothing. Yes, no, it was worth it. I did have a small business at the time that I was running, but, um, it was sort of on my own schedule. So what kind of business? 
I was a wedding photographer. I ran a wedding wow. photography company in Southern California. So I had um, photographers that would shoot for me and on my company's behalf in different cities all over California and Arizona. Um, and sometimes in other states. And so it was training them. It was doing booking. I did all the processing of the images I met with the clients. And so it was that kind of thing. You're listening to Writer's Voices. And our guest today is J.L., author of House of Marion. And this is your second series, correct? This is my second YA series, yes. My first was a duology. This is a, my first was a duology urban fantasy. This is a romantic fantasy trilogy. Okay. Um, Were you always someone who liked to read this type of book? Yeah, you know, what's funny is these are the types of books I love to read. I just never imagined I could write them. (laughs) I finally decided after I finished my duology, which I absolutely love, and it's just such a passion project of my heart, I decided I didn't want to write any more um, any more fantasy with a, sort of a social justice bent. I just, after the last few years, I was like, I just want to write kissy books, and I, I, that's what I'm going to do. So, And so I really made what I consider a semi-reckless decision that I fully stand by to completely pivot to writing what I wanted instead of like building a cohesive brand around social justice inspired urban fantasy, which I do love to read um, in which my wings of ebony duology is. I decided to pivot and sort of give myself permission to write what I wanted, which can be, you know, it doesn't always work. Um, Sometimes publishers are like, "Mm, this doesn't feel in line with your brand. Or sometimes publishers are like, "Mm, you already have an established audience in this other place. Like this is like starting over. And I just didn't care. I was like, if it doesn't work and this is the end of my career, then so be it. I want to write this. Well, that's really interesting, and I'm glad it's I'm glad it's working for you. You know, I recently interviewed the author of um, After Anne, which was the story of the kind of a fictionalized account of the life of the author of Anne of Green Gables, and she wanted to not have to keep writing those same kind of stories like Anne of Green Gables. Um, back and this would have been back in the early 1900s and it didn't work out so well for her but but um so you're right it doesn't always work and but in this case it certainly seems to be working well for you and I think in general it's probably going to be easier to do nowadays than it was back in that time where women authors were so limited Mm mm-hmm you know, female author, the fact that she was, she was like the, she was the Mark Twain of Canada. Oh, wow. Yeah. Ella Montgomery, I think was her name, um, Maud Montgomery. And um, she was so famous and so successful and ended up having kind of a miserable life. But um, so interesting. But so with this, you said, the social justice fantasy, that's not a genre that I'm really familiar with. Can you, like, so Wings of Ebony is part of that. Um, what was, what were, the, like, the social justice issues that you were dealing with? Well, I wouldn't say it's, like, a specific genre. I mean, I think that's part of why I was so passionate about writing it. I had never seen anything like it before. Ah, Okay. And so really, I mean, I took an urban fantasy story or a story set sort of in an inner city community in the contemporary world 
And I made some metaphorical parallels to racial injustice in the, in the real world. And it was a deeply cathartic book. That image that I had in my head and that girl that was standing over the, the, that body that was bleeding, you know, I built a story around this idea that that, that person was um, related to her and they were killed and it was very sad and they didn't deserve to be killed. And, and the people who were responsible um, needed to answer for those crimes. And so she uh, went to a, she was whisked away by her estranged father to a, an island of magic wielders off the coast of Africa where she had to unearth her ancestors' magic and then return home to protect her community. And so it's a very nuanced exploration of social justice and, and um, all kinds of racism and there's factors in there. There's so there's, I haven't talked about this book in years, so it's a little funny. <laughs> there's, there's, um, so racism, there's um, socioeconomic inequality. I deal with microaggressions. I deal with blatant racism. And so needless to say, it's a very important book, and I'm very proud of it. Um, it's also very different from House of Marion. And I will say it was emotionally very taxing to write about because it's rooted in a community I grew up in and um, tragedies that are very near and dear to my heart. And so I could only write so many scenes about that before it just became training to talk about all the time. So I'm grateful it's out there. It's I'm so proud of it. It's a two book series. So it's Wings of Ebony and Ashes of Gold. And it's resonated beautifully in the hearts of readers. And I just, I'm so proud of it. Um, but I was ready to do something that was a little bit more, I mean, there's still real world <laughs> parallels and House of Marion definitely deals with real world parallels for sure yeah yeah but maybe way. not as not as obvious perhaps right uh, right yeah, right yeah and I can I can understand that but often it does seem like really gripping fiction can maybe change minds yeah. about issues more than anything you know and I think it's because reading breeds empathy I think there's something about reading through the lens of a character and walking in their shoes and seeing life through their lens. And I think that's one of the things I love so much about both of my books, but both of my series, but in particular House of Marion, because um, the prologue or like one of the, so the, the main, most of for readers who don't, or listeners who don't know, most of the chapters are from the main character's perspective, but there are a smattering of, of chapters from another perspective, just a handful throughout the book. And his name is Yagrin. And he is an assassin in this magical order, and he doesn't like being an assassin. And so I think that's just another attempt at sort of creating questions in the reader. Like, who do I empathize with? And when people do bad things, is it, is it Yagrin's fault or is it the people who, like, trained and conditioned him? And so I love playing with these complex questions and, like, letting readers walk in shoes they might not normally. Absolutely. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit about kind of the world of House of Marion? Sure. Well, I'll give you the short pitch. <laughs> so, <laughs> the bite-sized sort of quick synopsis and pitch is that House of Marion is like Game of Thrones meets Succession with tiaras and pretty dresses. <laughs> um, <laughs> it follows Kel, uh, who's 17 years old, who's been on the run from a secret society because of a forbidden dark magic that she has. But when she's almost caught by an assassin hunting her, she runs to one of the training schools for proper magic. She intends to master this proper form of magic in order to bury her dark magic forever. Only her dark magic is determined to not be snuffed out. And to make matters worse, she's falling in love with an assassin in training from a rival house. Oh, my. 
Okay. <laughs> and it's interesting that um, at the beginning of the book, it's she and her mother. And, but her mother gets left behind pretty quickly, which for books for like young adults, often the parents have, you have to get rid of the parents somehow, don't you? (laughs) You know, the thing I love about this book is that you, so, okay, no spoilers. (laughs) (laughs) No. (laughs) We do have to get rid of, quote unquote, Kel, Kel needs to explore who she is outside of being around her mother all the time, but her mother is a very central figure in the series. Mm. And so that is rare in YA. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, he's her driving motivator um, because with Kel being on the run with her mom, it sort of inadvertently puts her mother in danger as well. And that begins to really weigh on Kel. She starts to feel really, really guilty about the fact that there are these assassins hunting both of them because they're trying to get to her. And so at some point she feels responsible to sort of fix this and see if she can get rid of this dark magic maybe um, and separate from her mom until she can do that. So you know, as as a mother, I keep hoping that her mother will pop up and help her a little bit. But um, <laughs> and I, I I'm sure that uh, that may happen at some point. And but you're right with YA fiction, you can't have the parents coming in and saving the day. That's not how it's done. Yeah, and the reality is that I just think that like YA readers, particularly teenagers. <laughs> students like they have the capacity and the skills and the energy to save the day and so yeah I like reflecting yes. that in fiction but I, I I will my lips are sealed on mom but just you know <laughs> okay hold all right hold on a little bit <laughs> you know I'm, I'm looking at your um your, the press release on this book and I wanted to mention that two of the three um uh blurbs that are at the top of this are from authors that we have previously had on Writers' Voices. So you are in great company here. That was Sabah Tahir and Marie Lu have both been previous guests. Yeah, aren't they wonderful? Wonderful. And and both of them, I think I caught fairly early in their career, too. So um, anyway, um, for those who maybe, for those listeners whose exposure to to YA fantasy may be limited to Harry Potter. How is this like that and how is it different? Is there anything that you that you sort of were inspired by from the Harry Potter books that you brought to so, this? Interesting that you mentioned that because I've noticed in early reviews a lot of people, a lot of people <laughs> have said if you enjoyed Harry Potter, you'd enjoy this. It's reminiscent of that. But funny enough, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't take any inspiration from them. I definitely read them, you know, when I was younger. I think there are commonalities, but there are also other worlds that have kind of created these house systems that you find. In Harry Potter, you have the magical boarding schools. You have Hogwarts and then the other two. Um, I think it's Bo Battens, and I don't remember the other one. But um, there is a similar dynamic here. The difference is that in Harry Potter, this is sort of a world in Europe, that is, and all of the schools are in different places and in different countries. I think Bobatins is in France, and I'm probably butchering that word. <laughs> in House of Marion, the houses function more like um, like lords um, back as 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 things as things were like years and years ago. And so, what you have is you have the country sectioned into territories, and each territory sort of has a house that serves that territory. 
So it's all here. Now, there are places for magical kids from different countries, but I wanted to localize the school here. And there are, you know, parts of the the world's history that that goes to Europe and Ireland and France. And it's a very globally diverse book and it has a globally diverse history. Um, But no, Harry Potter didn't (laughs) didn't inspire it. (laughs) And also it's set in your book is set in a modern time correct? It is. It is set in a modern time. It's set in today. And the the idea is that there are secret societies that exist. So if you think of like Skull and Bones, right? Mm -hmm. Or something like that. And you think of like Skull and Bones meets kind of debutante society or a Bridgerton sort of world. So you do have houses, which is, so you have house allegiances. They have house sigils or house symbols. They have colors. They have camaraderie in the house and everybody sort of has house pride. But it is a very, it does adult crossover well because, you know, Harry Potter was very young. I think it read very young. This reads a lot more upper YA. Definitely. Definitely. And so you have rivalries between the houses. There's a glittering world uh, on the pages, but there is definitely a dark underbelly to the world. And you get to see both sides of it, which is very cool. Well, this whole debutante society um, is, is kind of a fun addition to the magic world so these these budding magicians um come from families of wealth for the Mm -hmm. most part or they're being because of their magical ability they're they're going to be exposed to a lot of very very wealthy people so how i mean is this debutante thing really does this really happen in the u.s today Oh gosh, yeah. No, it's a- <laughs> and how did you how did you research that? It's like this is something I know nothing about. <laughs> well, okay, so I'm, first of all, I feel like debutantes are like the the remnants of like the Regency era. It's like all we get. And I love <laughs> on my bio, I love a good Regency read or a good Regency show. And so there are these little pocket niches of debutantes in modern society. Now they are, they function very differently, obviously. Um, they don't, no one's marrying off their kids from what I know, but um, they're more of just like social, socially elite groups that are getting together to do sort of, um, you know, I think some of the more Northern groups, it's more about sort of empowerment and look what I've accomplished and sort of a pat on the back to these, these girls coming into society. Um, whereas in the South, where I am from, it still has some of its more traditional roots where it's steeped in etiquette courses and it's about sort of presenting yourself to society. But I'm using air quotes, which you can't see with my finger. <laughs> when I say society, it's like your 20 group of friends in your neighborhood. Like it's not, you know, it's not, any, it's like the people who all go to the same golf club. It's not anything. It's not like, uh, it okay. Now, do like we're going to learn how to use different forks and we're going to learn how to do different dances. One of the modern cotillions that I've heard about recently, they're not, I mean, they do teach a waltz but they're also teaching like 10 other dances that are like the dances that teenagers are dancing right now when they go oh, like to okay. and okay. so it's you know it's also about socializing and social etiquette uh there's still you know event planning and how do you host a party and do people still write thank you notes and do i bring a hostess gift so it's kind of those types of things is what i've seen and and so i of course dramatized all of it for my book, i was gonna say but... do they actually learn to curtsy no, you know, I don't think they do. However, however, I haven't researched them all. So for, for a listener who is somewhere in the world that is still learning to curtsy, I do not 
there, there may be some curtsying going on somewhere. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I think don't fun. when you meet like when you had met the Queen or King of England, weren't you yes. still supposed to curtsy? Absolutely. Yeah. You have the same sort of mannerisms here when you meet the headmistress of the house. All of the houses are run by women, which is a fun little twist on um the patriarchy because initially when the this mysterious secret society put women in charge of the houses, they did it to slight them. Um, they said, you know, women should be involved in rearing children. So they made all of the house headmistresses women, right? But uh, then all of a sudden, and I will not spoil this for you, you have to read the whole series, all of the upper council, which was like 12 men, suddenly disappeared one day. And so now technically the houses are run by women only. Oh, <laughs> so that's how it became a matriarchal society. Just get rid of the men. <laughs> now, your bio mentioned you're, you're a former educator. What did you teach? I taught science, writing, and then I actually taught character. I worked at a charter school where we did lots of character development. Um, the concept behind this school was that you develop the whole person essentially and not just their study habits. So we focus on things like being nice and kindness and um, studiousness. And so just uh, that was also one of the, the electives that we taught at this very unique school. Okay. You don't normally expect the science teacher to be teaching. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't want to teach science to be super, super transparent. They put me in science. So they hired me before they fully knew what I was going to teach because they looked for more of like a fit, a cultural fit first. Like who is sort of behind the philosophy of the school. A lot of the kids that I was working with, like 85% of them were first year English language learners. Most of them come from low socioeconomic status families. And that was also my background. And so they thought it was just a good match, passion for passion. They thought I'm a first generation college student. And they thought that I would just be good with those kids and just care about them, which I did and do still. I actually have Facebook friends now. They're fully adults and like they have their own kids and I feel very old, but um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but they they decided that I would do science because looking at my college transcript, I had a lot of science classes, and that's how they decide what content area you teach. Because I was a pre vet major initially, a pre vet major, med. I'm sorry. Oh, med, pre med. Sorry. Okay. Oh, wow. Okay. So then you said you taught writing as well. I did. I taught seventh grade writing briefly. Mm-hmm. Okay. So. You you mentioned that you never really thought that you'd be able to write these books, but did you, were you one of these kids who was, you know, writing things in your journal all the time and, um, or that? I had a very lively diary. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And the memory that burns me the most is in sixth grade, I took my diary to school and it was stolen out of my backpack by a football player. And I was laughed at for the rest of the year. So yeah, <gasps> I never took my writing to school again. I never dared journal, but I writing was just always my safe space. I would write down my thoughts, my feelings. Um, I didn't actually start writing in narrative form until honestly, until as an you know as an adult, and it was a sort of smattering of idea that I had before Wings of Ebony, and then Wings of Ebony. So really, Wings of Ebony was my first like actual like nov- novel that I wrote you know, pursuing traditional publishing, but that's, yeah, that's how I ended up never writing at school again in my life. <laughs> oh my goodness. It was Poor kid. I don't... It was bad. Oh, 
And of course, the guy, the football player who stole it, I had a crush on, right? Of so course, yeah. It was the worst. Yeah, it doesn't get much worse than that, does it? <laughs> <laughs> I know, I, you know, when I see kids like that age, I'm just always thinking, I wish I could tell them that all the things that matter so much now aren't going to matter later. You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that the you know popularity and what you know the kids who are good at something that they get a lot of praise for at that age, it isn't going to matter at all in twenty years. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. Yeah, but everybody has to learn it on their own. I don't think there's any way to actually convey that to somebody. So the world building is how do you go, do you go into these books sort of, well, obviously with Wings of Ebony, you didn't have, since you had to rebuild the world a second time, um, you started with character and scene and sort of a setting there. But with the House of Marion, did you start with the world or did you start with character? You know, I think... Usually characters come to me first. And so I started with the character, but the world took over. Mm-hmm. So the first draft that I wrote, I call a zero draft. And it was November, <laughs> it was November month. And I just remember planning to sit down and write what I could. And so I had an idea of a girl who grew up a runaway. She was very good at being a shadow. And she enters this world where all of a sudden she's a center of attention. And so I wanted to explore what that's like, the emotions, the pressure. I wanted to play around with the love interest um, that she interacts with. I didn't, I didn't know if I wanted him to be broody and dark or a bad boy or a rule follower or a cinnamon roll. So I wanted to kind of play around. So I just let myself explore. I made a loose trajectory of a plot, just kind of sketched out some thoughts, and then I started writing. And quickly, once she got inside of House of Marion, I all of a sudden realized well, then, you know, what are the classes like and, and how does their magic show? And so I started to play with all these ideas that popped in my head. And once I got to about 88,000 words, I still hadn't finished the draft. I stopped and I deleted everything. What? And I, <laughs> yes, because by that point I knew, okay, these are the pieces of the ma- the world that I love. And there's several things I could just toss, but there were pieces of the world that I loved. Like I knew at that point the diadems are going to sprout out of their head as a manifestation of their magic. So I knew that that was going to happen. And then I knew that I wanted a rule following duty bound, broody love interest. And so now that I had the elements that I wanted, I had to go back to the beginning and learn more about them. And so from that point, I did a deep dive into character, but it sort of started with character. The world building took over and then I deleted it all and I went back to character. Because for me, if the reader doesn't care about the character, to me, I think that the world can only hold a person's attention for so long. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's all about the character. And I write, I like to write deep emotional stories. And so, again, the emotion connects to the character, not the, not the world as much. So that's where I hang my hat. Wow. Do you ever run into issues with, you know, you've got the rules of the world set and something happens in the plot where it just isn't going to work? I have run into that. Not with this book because I planned extensively. So, so far, so good. Um, But I have with other books. Wow. 
So you say you plan because of the having written these 88,000 words and then starting over. Well, that was part of it. I actually, let me see. When I, when I erased the 88,000 and then I went back to the characters and I said I needed to get to know them, what I meant by that was I actually wrote their life stories. Like I just popped into, for example, my love interest, Jordan, I wrote, I jumped into his head when he was eight years old, or excuse me, 10 years old. And I wrote the first time that he showed up at his house. His family's house was, they were zoned to House of Pearl. And so I wanted to write his first time showing up at House of Pearl. He had his brother with him. His parents were with him. And I wanted to write what it was like in House of Pearl, what the pressure was like on him. I wrote 67,000 words of just his life growing up, um, starting when he was 10 and finishing right before he met Cal in book one. And so that helps me get to know him. And then the grandmother who is, my main character's grandmother is the headmistress of House of Marion. I wrote her childhood. I wrote a scene from when she was seven. And then I jumped to when she was like 20. And then I jumped to two other key moments in her adult life that I can't share because spoilers. And <laughs> I wrote about 30,000 words of her life. And so I did that for several characters. I have about, <laughs> I have about 300,000 words uh, of various histories. And I also wrote, you know, where did magic start? Where was magic in the ancient days? Where was magic when Alexander the Great marched? Where was magic during World War II? Where was it? So I traced magic through time and history, and I made a long, like, document of mythology and lore. And so once I did all of that, then I started writing. You must write really, really fast. <laughs> well, all <laughs> of that stuff doesn't matter. So, yeah, I just don't even care what it sounds like. I just it out yes wow. <laughs> I think my book is coming slower like my first full draft of Marianne if you include the zero draft took me about two years to get out um which for me is slower usually I, I'm faster than that so and it's a trilogy so how much of the of book two and three are complete um book well we write them one at a time so I'm working on book three right now I think I'm um at 110,000 words well, and book two is in the publishing process, the editing process, or it is, yep, yeah, it is great. So, Jay, why don't you read a little bit from House of Marianne for us? Absolutely. Okay, so to give you some context about where I'm starting, Kel is just now showing up to House of Marianne. She's trying to get in through the gate. Um, she has parted ways with her mother, and uh, the only context you need to know is that she has forbidden magic which is a secret. And the reason she's going to House of Marion is because she doesn't know where else to go. She needs a place to lay her head until her mother comes, comes to find her. Hello. I set my bag on the ground. They must have cameras. Is anyone here? Nothing. Something swoops overhead and the world darkens, but above I only glimpse shadow like clouds that have moved on but left their shade behind. I blink. It's gone. The dimness of the evening thickens. Wind grazes my skin, rustling the trees, and the slants of shade draw near, stretching across the pavement, reaching for me. Who's there? I force down the lump in my throat and feel for the flap of my bag, eyeing mom's dagger hilt with images of the dragon after me still on the back of my eyelids. Suddenly, darkness from above nosedives toward me, and panic flares in my chest. My fingers graze the hilt of my dagger just before a force pummels me into my pummels into my back, knocking me forward, ripping away my breath. 
My knees slam the ground, prickling with pain. I reach again for my bag. The zipper sticks, but I jiggle it open, and a thick fog as black as night surrounds me. I steady myself for the blow, trying to see which direction it's coming from. But there is nothing, no one, only shadows. The fog lifts and my side throbs with the sting of a fresh wound. I hold the spot where it aches as the world tips sideways. The trees sway, watching in judgment like the iron gates that wouldn't let me in. I scan for some indication of where the shadow went, where it will come from next, but only see tricks of light, splotches of black on the ground that blur and shift. Please stop. My ribs quake with pain as if they're being snapped out of place. I peer harder, grow colder, pins pushing behind my eyes, trying to translate the darkness. I blink and the world glitches white. That's when I see him. As an outline of his feet, shaped only by air. He lunges towards me, but I'm ready. I grab his ankle, hold as tight as I can, and tug. He trips, but somehow catches himself before falling. The shadow he was blows away like sand. What's left behind is a guy about my age, dressed much like the gate guard, with a glare that is a dagger of its own. I gulp. Another one. A gleaming mask covers the top half of this dragon's face as well, but it's much more ornate than the others I've seen, intricately carved along its edges where it fades into his skin. His dark coat and loose-fitting top are lined with red embroidery, much finer than any of the other dragons wore. But the cinch at his neck, where I expect to see a silver coin, is only fabric. The gate guard already cleared, but before I can finish, he's on his feet, nostrils flaring, before disappearing into a cloud of black. I, I start, but I'm engulfed in a dark fog as cold as death, a fog of him. Sharp pain pricks me all over like slashes with a fine blade. I blink, but everything is black and red. I wail in pain. My Tashana roars in me, a blanket of ice wrapping around my bones, so insistent it burns. I bite down, trying to focus and force my eyes open, looking for an outline, some sign of where the dragon's striking from. The fog shifts, rippling around his shape. I swing out my arm, as cold as a frozen log, slamming, slamming it into the back of his knees. He stumbles but recovers swiftly as the shadows lift and he reappears. His green eyes narrow. I pull myself up and snatch the dagger, thrusting its tip straight at his face. Mom's warnings about Grandmom and this world haunting me. Touch me again and I'll slice you in half. The world frays at the edges, red rivers running between my fingers, down my arms. My threat doesn't garner a response, but his gaze fixates on the blade. Warmth soaks my side and whatever he did to me makes it feel like something is ripping apart my insides. But I hold my dagger arm higher, firm. He won't touch me again. Tiny cuts stripe my arms and hands. Blood. There's so much blood. The mask on his face vanishes. Where'd you steal that? He says. It's mine. He shakes his head with disbelief. Who are you? I blow out a shaky breath. Words I've been forbidden to say my entire life rise like bile in my throat. Marion. Kel Janae Marion. He holds out his hand and I consider my blade, but tuck it away. My legs, scratched and worn out from the scuffle, feel like lugging lead. I stagger and he steadies me with a rough shake before wrapping his arm tightly around my back, pulling me to him. I stiffen against his hard chest as he leads me through the gate, wincing as his closeness presses against my wounds. 
A sprawling house, not unlike a castle, gazes down at us, lit up like a star in the distance, a blanket of rolling green between us and it, like a manor in a world all its own. Hold on to me, he says, pulling me along faster, but the pain radiating all over my body sharpens and I can hardly keep up. He latches my hand on his arm and my heart thuds in my ears. His grip on me is somehow both gentle and tight. Closer to him, the fabric at his throat is easier to see. What I thought was, a, was bare fabric is a stitched image of a hooked claw, a replica of the one the gate guard had on the coin at his neck. However, his is sewn in black thread, a talon, not a cracked column. I try to exhale but can't because nothing about his hold on me says I'm safe. I've done nothing wrong. Where exactly are you taking me? His grip on me tightens, his jaw working. Don't let go of me. It isn't a request. The world spins around us, and in moments, we're at the foot of the estate, where pointed arch columns line the front. Along its stone triangular pediment, the name Marion is etched. My insides slosh. My name. Beneath it is some sort of symbol, a fleur-de-lis, and talon wrapped in words in a language I can't read. I catch a glimpse of myself in the window, and despite my bloodied clothes, I tie up my hair and dust off my freckled cheeks but my hands stain chafed from the pavement. He pushes, the he pushes open the doors, tucking me along inside. The ceiling towers above a masterpiece of gold leaf rosettes and crown molding like in the fancy castles I've read about in history books. Arches appear to be ripped right into it, reminiscent of an old haunted church. He leads me through the entryway past a maze of portrait-lined paneled walls to a grand foyer where a giant sphere hovers midair like a black moon. Tiny speckles shine like constellations inscribed all over its glassy surface. Beneath them, darkness swirls violently. What is that? I reach to graze my fingers along its low-lying belly as we pass, but my hand goes right through it as if it's no more than an illusion. I rub my eyes, warming all over with awe. He pulls me along and I fidget in his grasp. I can walk just fine on my own. He holds me tighter. Music croons between a pair of towering carved doors as we pass. I crave for a glimpse inside. Bright lights illuminate an audience arced around a stage, some wearing masks, others with gold or silver tiaras on their heads. On the stage, a girl dressed quite fancily raises a dagger high above herself. I gasp. Eyes ahead. My captor snatches me along before I can see more. We go up one grand, one grand staircase, then another, next a long hall. Sweeping windows gaze out to a speckled sky hung over a sea of grass and sculpted plants. My wet shoes squeak, skidding on the polished floor. He urges us along faster, my mouth gaping, head swiveling at it all. How could a place so dangerous be so beautiful? And that was J.L. reading from House of Marion. Now, Jay, you mentioned that um, you sort of had pivoted away from incorporating a lot of social justice in your fantasy, and yet House of Marion isn't all fluff. (laughs) (laughs) No, not at all. (laughs) And so there's a theme of power and conformity. Um, You want to talk about that a little bit? Yes. Um, I wanted to really do a deep dive into morally gray characters. I love the, I love writing stories that make readers sort of shift in their seats, that, that 
scenes that stay with readers long after the last page that, you know, give them questions that they subconsciously war with. And it makes them want to reread the book again and again and again as they consider those things. I love writing stories and reading stories that are conversation starters. And so morally gray is sort of where I landed. I wanted to create characters who do not make perfect choices. And in fact, they make some pretty bad ones, some pretty scary ones. And I wanted to wrap that up in as complex a setting as possible. So I thought, if I'm going to play with morally grayness, why don't I juxtapose it with beauty and a social, a group of social elites and wealth and power? And so part of the reason I'm exploring power is because I want to explore the people who don't have power and sort of what happens when a group of people aren't given the freedom over their own lives. I wanted to look at sort of what happens when a person can't have freedom. Um, when it breeds revenge and who do we blame? Do we blame the people that took away their freedom? Do we blame the power structures? Do we blame, blame the angry person? And so there is no perfect answer to that question. And so I love, I love that. And so that's part of what I was trying to create, um, which is why in this world, you have such a very clear picture of an oppressive, powerful system where there are people within it who are clamoring to hold on to their power or to insulate themselves within their own power or to steal power from someone else or to take what little power they can. It is it is a battle. It's one of my favorite things about Game of Thrones, if anybody has listened to or <laughs> watched that, is this concept of power is so intoxicating. And I liked the idea of exploring a power that is sort of detached from money, because I do think wealth breeds a kind of power, particularly in this world. But what happens when the currency is magic and what happens when the currency is sort of given out to certain people, kept from others? Um, and so it's, it's, a, it's a conversation starter of a book, and I'm excited to see the discourse that comes out of it. Now, there's uh, in what you read, she referred to her Tushana, which is the word for the dark forbidden power. Is this a word you made up or where did it come from? No, I made it up. Linguistics um, <laughs> are really cool. Just something that I'm very into in my original duology. I made up a language, a native language for the people there. And so Tashana is one of the words that I designed for this world, if you will. <laughs> are, there, are there any other original words in this world? There are several, actually. You should hear some that you don't recognize. There's also Latin in this world as well. Because in the secret society, they needed a more of a more of a uh, a clandestine way to communicate, and so they decided to use um, a dead language. And so you find a lot of Latin throughout the book, um, as well as magical. I wouldn't call them spells because they don't use a wand or anything like that. But the way that magic is used, you'll find all kinds of new vocabulary in in regard to that. Mm, that must have been kind of fun to develop that it was really fun it was fun to create something and give it so so many roots that it feels like oh this has been here the whole time <laughs> like, surely Kishana is a real word and it's meant dark magic yeah like, of course of course <laughs> and now another kind of theme for the, this whole world is uh diversity mm -hmm. and why don't you speak to that a little bit? You know, one of the things I love about fantasy is that you are 
the reason magic always creeps in my book is because you are experiencing the unimaginable. And I think there's something really cool about, especially for younger readers, about immersing them in a world that can, that make the impossible seem possible. And so fantasy is always my genre of choice for that reason. Um, however, a lot of times reading, I didn't see myself reflected in books. I didn't see communities like mine, which is part of the reason why my, my debut was set in a community I'd never seen in a fantasy novel. And so in this book, it was very important to me as I created this sort of global, or as I created this global world of a secret society that everyone could find their place in it. I wanted to create a world that looks like the world I live in. When I look at my demographic of community, when I look at the people that I pass by every day, just in this very diverse city of Houston, I wanted to bring a, and I don't just mean racial diversity. I mean, socioeconomic diversity. I mean, gender diversity. I mean, um, all kinds of neurodiversity. I wanted to make sure that it was representative of the real world because what I didn't want is readers to step into a book and it feel unfamiliar. Like, oh, this is a place where, and I mean, if I was writing Elves and Dragons, sure. But when I'm writing a contemporary <laughs> novel, I want people to not only recognize the buildings, but I want them to recognize the diversity of atmosphere. I mean, when I go into a restaurant, there are many, many countries often represented in that restaurant. There's all different types of diversity around me. And so to me, it just makes sense to write a book that resonates with that because that's the, that's the world that we live in and it's beautiful. Now you mentioned that you're a fan of the Regency era. And of course, Bridgerton is um, a very popular TV series set in the Regency era that centers people of color. Mm-hmm. that we don't usually think of as even being part of that era. So has is that a little bit of an inspiration for you? I mean, I definitely admire what Shonda Rhimes did. I, I was very um, into the shows. I have only read one of the books, but I hear the books are even better. So I'm excited <laughs> to dive into those more. But I was definitely inspired by the audacity of Shonda Rhimes. I'm very encouraged by it. I admire what she's been able to do with that series. And I think there should be more series that are TV shows and films and books that are, that are willing, particularly like the TV medium. So movies and books, or or, excuse me, movies and shows that um, really give us a picture on the screen of the world we live in now reimagined. Well, I think one of, I think, um, Lynn Manuel, and, and now the rest of his name is escaping. But anyway, the, the the gentleman who wrote Hamilton also has to be credited a little bit with that, in that he cast people of color in roles in Hamilton that we mm-hmm. never would have thought of that, and and it worked so well. Well, I'm not sure if people would have necessarily thought of it I think it's just it wasn't the norm you know yes it wasn't the norm at the time um yeah Daniel Miranda that's it yeah and so I do think that um I feel like the desire um has always been to see that I mean I know that I would go into shows and even books like from when I was a a kid and and be excited when I saw a character in the book that resonated with me and so it feels like we're getting more of that which I think is is absolutely critically important because it is it is on people's hearts and minds it just it it, it is not the norm i'm hoping it becomes a more commonplace with, I, with I think it i think it is i think it's becoming where you don't really even notice it so much or at least i don't i mean 
it's becoming where I don't automatically think, oh, isn't that cool? They cast a person of color in that. It's just like, mm -hmm. oh, I don't yeah. even think about it, you know. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I'm hoping I'm hoping too that that becomes more the norm. Um, tell me a little bit about this Little Mermaid book. So the Little Mermaid book uh, is a prequel to the to the Little Mermaid itself. Disney read my debut book, Wings of Ebony, and there's a sister relationship in that book that they really loved, and they wanted to, in in a, the the lead up to the movie with Halle Bailey, they wanted to publish a prequel to the movie six weeks before the release to sort of be a part of the movie pre-marketing campaign. And so they wanted it to focus on the sisters because instead of it being romance focused, because we want, they wanted Ariel to, you know, first love to be Eric. So they wanted a sister story. And so after they read Wings of Ebony, they reached out and they said, I really liked what you did with the sister relationship. Would you consider writing a prequel? I thought it was a joke. I was like this, cause it was April. I was like, this is a late April Fool's joke, but it, they were dead serious. And, <laughs> I was um, super honored to have the opportunity to write such a historic project, and uh, I've just, I've adored it. It was a fun ride having it come out and just seeing all of that movie meant to my own children, meant to me, and um, just having readers be able to learn so much more about her sisters in wow. the book. Well, I think that sounds like a lot of fun, too, and I bet you wrote it really quickly. <laughs> I did. It took editing. <laughs> of course, of course. Well, Jay, we're out of time, and I want to thank you so much for being with us today. I want to say I loved reading this book. I couldn't put it down, House of Marianne. It's just, it was such a good read. Um, real page turner. And thank you. we always end with a quote, and this is what I found for today from Nora Roberts Love and magic have a great deal in common. They enrich the soul, delight the heart, and they both take practice. Thanks for sharing that. Of course. And thank you, and see you all next week on Writer's Voices.